0: Please stand with me this morning as we read from God's Word and open in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 this morning. Pastor Bruce starts a new series on love, sex, and marriage, and this morning's message focuses on the secret to a lasting relationship. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find it on page 676. Again, we're going to read Ephesians, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love, as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Let's pray. God, we thank you for loving us and dying for us. God, that sacrifice we, we cannot match, but Lord, we just pray that you would teach us this morning, Lord, to love each other. Uh, God, and to just uh, rely on you uh, for relationships that will last. In Christ's name, amen. Well, as Kirk said, we're going to begin a brand
1: new series today called Love, Sex, and Marriage. And this series is based on one chapter in the Bible, Ephesians chapter 5, in which you saw the first two verses in the video. It's the first two verses that Kirk read for us in our scripture reading And what we're going to do is for the next seven weeks, including today or starting today, is we're going to look at 33 verses in Ephesians chapter 5 on the topic of love, sex, and marriage. Now, if we're honest, there's probably uh, few subjects in life that ignite as much passion and longing for desire for love, our interest in sex, and our hope in lasting relationships than these things. Let's face it, after taking care of the necessities of life, whether you're 17 years old or whether you're 77 years old, we spend most of our waking hours pondering, pursuing, or solving problems related to love, sex, or marriage. So, here's the question. How do you think most people are doing in the area of love, sex, in marriage. When you look at across our world, let's even focus it in across America. Maybe focus it in across the people you know. Maybe even within our own church, how are most people doing in this area of life that consumes so much of our life? Despite all the songs about love, if we're honest, we have to admit people don't seem to be getting much of it. Despite all the movies, that glorifies sex, it remains one of the most common points of frustration and causes of arguments in couples and marriages across our country. Even in surviving marriages, the atmosphere often reeks of unhappiness and disappointment. So how are most people doing in the area of love, sex, and marriage? The bottom line is, I think most of us would agree with me this morning, that we long to love... We long to be loved, and there's a reason for that, because we were created in the image of God, and God is all about relationships. In fact, life is all about relationships, and so we can't avoid this issue. It consumes us, and one reason is because we were created with a desire to be in relationships. We long for it. We want to love and to be loved but we just don't seem to know how to do it very well. We struggle at it. All of us do. So are we all destined to be frustrated in our relationships and become the byproducts of of dysfunctional relationships that so many of us, when we scan across the workplace, our neighborhoods, the people our kids play with, that that's what dominates their relationship? Or is there a better way to do relationships? Is there a secret plan, if you will? Is there a, 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 a plan or design, a model for experiencing genuine love, great sex, in lasting relationships? Well, as preposterous or presumptuous as it may sound, the answer is yes. There is a better way. And it's not because I'm super smart about relationships. Don't get that idea. I have not cornered the market on romance. You can ask my wife that. She'll tell you. She says there's times I'm very romantic. And most of the time, I'm just another guy that's married to her, that loves her, and we have our ups and downs like most couples do. And we push through. We struggle through. And we do it with the hope and power of God and his word. But it's not because I'm super smart about relationships. It's not because I've cornered the market on romance. The answer is yes because, listen, the one who created you to love and be loved has a plan. He has a design for how relationships can work for a lifetime. The answer is yes because the one who made sex and gave sex to us for our own enjoyment, also has provided a set of instructions for how we can enjoy sex at its best. So this series that we're going to dive into today for the next seven weeks, this series is all about discovering God's plan, if you will, for love, sex, and marriage. So that you, then, can make an educated decision about whose plan you're going to follow in your life. Now, let me just say up front too, regardless of your current relational status, and so whether you're here this morning and you're single, whether you're here and you're single again, or whether you're married happily or unhappily, this series is for you. All of us can benefit from this series because it's based on God's word. God's Word has something to say for all of us here this morning, regardless of where we are in life, whether we're 17 or 77 or what our relational status is currently right now. When we pursue relationships without understanding God's perspective, we are destined for disappointment and frustration. But here's the good news. When we follow God's plan, for relationships, we can experience what he wanted for us in the beginning. We can experience intimacy. We can experience joy and fulfillment in that relationship. And it's not a relationship without problems, without struggles, without conflicts. That's not the idea. There's no such relationship that exists that's without those things. But there can be relationships that in spite of those things, they overcome them and they still experience God's best and His plan for their life, which is intimacy, is joy, is satisfaction, and is fulfillment for a lifetime. That's a possibility. Even though when we look across the landscape, and maybe all the people you know and that you socialize with, you're like, they haven't experienced it. They haven't experienced it. They haven't experienced it. And you're now telling me that it's a possibility in my life? Absolutely. God's plan works for all generations. For all peoples, for all times. Do you believe that? I hope so. Because for the next seven weeks, we're going to dive into God's plan in Ephesians chapter 5. So my challenge is this. When it comes to God's plan for love, sex, and marriage, here's what I'm asking you to do for the next seven weeks, is to keep an open heart and an open mind until the end of this series. So where should we start then this morning? Well, let's begin with two simple questions. Here's the first question in your notes coming up on the screen. How how do you go about finding real love? How do you go about finding real love? The second question is, where did you learn your approach to finding love, sex, and lasting relationships? If you think about it, I would venture to say that most of us here this morning follow a certain set of unwritten rules... And we make certain assumptions about relationships. And if we're honest, most of us have probably never really questioned where those rules or assumptions come from, or even if they are worth following. So where, then, do we get most of our ideas about love, about sex, and marriage? Where does our view come from what shapes our view in these three areas of life well I think if we're honest most of us would have to admit we'd have to say that we learned about love we learned about sex and marriage through our culture through our world view of the culture whether it's from friends whether it's from Facebook or whether it's in the movies TV or the internet taken together Our culture has its plan. It has a formula, if you will, about love, sex, and relationships and how they are supposed to work. And in the process, I think we have become convinced that if we follow this simple formula to relationships that our culture espouses, then it will just work out for us. Just like it works in the movies, just like it says in the songs. So whether you realize it or not, our culture has a formula. It has its own ideas about love, sex, and lasting relationships. And it's so easy for us as Christ followers to kind of get squeezed in that, to kind of just assume that for ourselves and to think that what our culture says works. But we're going to take a brief look at our culture's formula, and we're going to see that it doesn't work really well. So let's look at two different models this morning. For lasting relationships, the first model for lasting relationships is our culture's model or our culture's formula for lasting relationships. And our culture says that there are basic four, basically four steps to follow. Step number one is you've got to find the right person. You've got to find the right person. The key to love is finding that one special person who's out there that's made just for you. He or she is out there, and you just have to find him or her. Just drive around, be on the lookout, because the moment will come, whether it's where you work, whether it's where you live, whether you go to the social place or the bar or the club, the workout place. It doesn't matter where. You just got to keep your eye out and be on the lookout and find that one person. In fact, when you look at every most movies that come out of Hollywood, most romantic movies are based on this very premise. The whole plot line is based on this. It's based on the premise of finding the, quote, right person. And the message is always the same. Finding the right person, it just kind of happens. That's step number one. Step number two is you got to fall in love then. Fall in love. Because when you find the right person, something will snap, and you'll just know you're in love. You may not know much about the person, but you will know you have fallen in love. And in the movies, you can fall in love with strangers, and it's the real thing. In fact, in in the culture's formula, love is based on chemistry. Not knowledge or character of that person. And the way you know you're in love is when you have these feelings, these ooey-gooey feelings, these goosebumps that kind of tell you, I'm in love. Even though I don't know much about that person, I don't really know their character, I don't know their makeup, what their background, but we got this chemistry going. I found this person, they found me, and now we've fallen in love. Step number three is you fix your hopes and dreams on this person for your future fulfillment and satisfaction in life. At this step, you begin to believe, I can't make it without him or her. The person you fall in love with becomes the the object of your life, your future, your dreams, and your satisfaction. And you suddenly realize that he or she is the only one who can make me happy. And although we all intellectually know that's impossible... We have been subtly taught through our culture to base our future happiness on the expectations that finding the right person will solve all of my problems. They will make me happy. And what problems I have, they'll just kind of go to the background. Because what will be at the foreground and what will consume me now is my happiness. that I'm with this person. I found him. I've fallen in love. And now I'm fixing my hopes and dreams on that person. So what happens, though, when these feelings of love start to subside? As they always do. What happens when the, quote, perfect partner turns out to have a flaw or two? What happens when she can't quite live up to your imagination? What happens when relational conflict begins to raise its ugly head and dissatisfaction begins to erode your feelings? Well, first we start to blame our problems on, well, the other person. The other person's inability to measure up. Second, our culture provides a convenient plan B when true love falters. Our lack of love, listen, it has nothing to do with us, with me. It's simply the result of discovering that we no longer have what? The right person. Or we were right for each other for a season, but oh, that season is now past. Is gone, so we must not be right for each other anymore. And since this happens all too often, our culture has a fourth step that has become the norm in our life today, and that is, if failure occurs, repeat steps one, two, and three. When relational breakdown occurs, the culture's formula offers a quick and supposedly painless solution. You take step four, you go back to the beginning, and start all over and hope this time... It will work. Here's the premise behind our culture's formula. The key to love is finding the right person. And if your current relationship isn't working, if for some reason this person doesn't fulfill all your dreams and desires, then you must have what? The wrong person. He or she may have seemed to be right at the start, but now he or she is not the right one. So what do you do? You throw away that one, and you find a new one, a quote right one. And when you do, you repeat the same formula until you get it right. And you just keep repeating this process over and over again. Now, I realize what I have just shared, well, it's pretty blunt, and it's to the point. In fact, it may even be a little extreme to make the emphasis, to make a point here. But the fact still remains. Our culture is telling us that the way to have and enjoy love, sex, and relationships is found through these four steps. So let's ask an honest question then. How do you think the culture's formula is playing out in the lives of those who are putting this formula to the test? Well, let's take a quick look at the success rate of the culture's formula. I don't think this is too surprising to any of us. This is nothing new. The success rate rate is this. The divorce population is the fastest-growing marital category in America. According to a 2005 report, married adults now divorce two and a half times as often as adults did 20 years ago and four times as often as they did 50 years ago. According to another study, listen to this, 50% of first-time marriages, 67% of second marriages, and 74% of third marriages end in divorce. If we're talking about a virus or an infection, listen, the Centers for Disease Control would be calling this a catastrophic epidemic. And yet this is the norm in our culture. And it's becoming more and more acceptable in our culture. It's just the way it is. And you can't change it. You can't do anything about it. But folks, listen, God has a different way. God has a different plan. And this is not it. Not only is the culture's formula unsuccessful, but it also causes a tremendous amount of pain and fallout. Research indicates that divorce negatively affects both spouses but children are the ones hurt the most. Judith Wallerstein wrote an article in USA titled Children of Divorce 25 Years Later. And in it, she described a landmark new study that has tracked children of divorce for 25 years, which found that the negative impact of family breakup continues well into adulthood. Once such grown children of divorce reported, part of me is always waiting for disaster to strike. I live in dread that some terrible loss will change my life. Now, here's the good news for these children. And some of you are those children, and you've experienced this good news that the grace of God supersedes all that and can help us work through all that. Amen? And some of you, many of you, are proof positive of God's amazing grace, because you've grown up in a home where you've experienced divorce. And so... It's not all ugly in the sense. If you come up from a divorce background, that hope is lost. God's grace, there is always hope with God's grace. But unless we seek an alternative, here's what will happen. We will simply end up following the prevailing culture around us in this area of love, sex, and marriage. And in case you're wondering, yes, it is true, the culture's formula is just as prevalent, sad to say, among those who profess to be Christ followers as those who are unbelievers. And the results are equally disastrous. But again, here's the good news. It is great news. God wants to help. God wants us to know that there's a better way. There's a better plan for our relationships. God has given us a divine design, if you will, for love, sex, and marriage. God has created a plan especially designated for us so that we may enjoy his best with the opposite sex. So let's look at it briefly here. Let's direct our attention on our second model. God's design for lasting relationships. God's design is found throughout all the Bible. In fact, we're going to look at God's specific design for marriage later on in this series. It begins in Genesis, but we'll talk about that later in the series. Paul, the Apostle Paul, does a great job summarizing God's design in Ephesians chapter 5, and specifically now in these first two verses we looked at. Let's read them again. Look at them with me again, either in your Bibles or in your notes. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling aroma. Now, in God's design for relationships, you must begin with the most important relationship. And that is your relationship with God. It starts there. And after teaching us all that we receive in this new relationship we have with God, in our new life in Christ, through our faith in Christ, in Ephesians chapter 1 through 3, Paul begins to describe how we can relate to one another in our life, in our relationships with one another. But it all rests on our vertical relationship with God that Paul establishes in Ephesians chapter 1. And the key is that relationship. You want to have great relationships with the opposite sex. You want to have great relationships with just your friends, with other believers, with co-workers. Listen, it'll never happen without a vertical relationship with God first. So, four steps to follow. Look at this with me. Step number one is become the right person. Instead of finding the right person, you become the right person. God tells us this. Instead of looking for love, God tells us to realize that love has found me in the person of Jesus Christ. God loves us and no one, like no one else can. And the best way for us to demonstrate that we have accepted God's love, that we have put our faith and trust in the person of God's love, which is His Son, Jesus Christ, is now to imitate God as closely as possible in the way we treat others in our horizontal relationships. You say, well, what does that look like? To imitate God. To be a follower of God, what does that look like in my relationships with everyone, but especially in my relationship with my spouse or with the opposite sex? Well, the last verse of Ephesians 4, in fact, really, the whole chapter of Ephesians 4 tells us, but let's key in on the very last verse of Ephesians 4. Notice what it says in verse 32. It says, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted. Forgiving one another, just as God in Christ also forgave you. There we have it. Imitating God means that in relationships we are to be kind, we're to be tenderhearted, we're to be willing to make allowances for people's mistakes, and we are to be constantly forgiving one another. And why are we to be this way? Why are we to be kind and forgiving? Because we realize that we must pass on to others what God has given to us. We who have been freely forgiven by God through His Son, Jesus Christ, we must now freely forgive. And that's how we imitate God. That's how we become the, quote, right person and it doesn't happen overnight it is a lifetime of continually learning to become the person that God wants us to be but what happens is we get so caught up into trying to find the right person before we have become the right person so what motivates us then to imitate God in our relationships Well, our motivation is seen in this phrase that Paul uses. Did you notice it? He says, be imitators of God as what? As dear children. Or as dearly loved children. In other words, the way we imitate God will be affected by our understanding... Of my identity in Christ. And my identity in Christ is I am a child of God. And I'm not just any child. I am a dear child. I'm a beloved child. Because I have been born again into the family of God through my faith in Jesus Christ. And that makes all the difference in the world in my foundation of who I am. You Want to know why so many problems happen in relationships? Because people don't have right foundations of their Identity. And so they're trying to figure out their identity and they put it on that person or that person or on that person. My identity is in that person. No, no, no. Your identity is in Christ. Become the right person. And what is the right person? You're a child of God. If you have been born again into the family of God, that's your foundation. Here's the point. We will not be able to imitate God in our love for others unless we know that we are already valuable and significant in God's eyes. That we are loved by Him. Our sense of being loved must not depend on that person liking us or that person coming through for us. This is why the idea of having a great relationship is is all about finding the right person is a lie. Listen, the key to developing a great relationship is becoming the right person first and foremost. Les and Leslie Perot illustrate this point well in their book. It's titled Relationships. They say, and I quote... If you attempt to build intimacy with a person before you've done the hard work of becoming a whole and healthy person, every relationship will be an attempt to complete the hole in your heart and the lack of what you don't have. That relationship will end in disaster. Let's be honest, that's what we see across our country. The key to lasting relationships, if I can simplify it this way, the key to our lasting relationship really does boil down to know Christ and grow in Christ. Know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior and then grow in that relationship with Jesus Christ. So all of us ought to be sitting in our pew right now and I ought to be standing here asking myself, do I know Jesus Christ as my Savior? And if I do, am I growing in that relationship? Am I becoming the right person? Because that's the key to lasting relationships. And that's why until you establish, well, let me just say this, that the world says, set your hope on this person to come through for you. Make this person the center of your existence. But we all know that doesn't work. And the problem is because that person you're setting your hopes and dreams on, well, they're like us, right? They're weak. They're imperfect. They got flaws, right? Warts, you name it. They're needy, just like you and I. And that's why until you establish an unshakable identity in Christ Every relationship will be an attempt to get something from that person to make you feel like you're okay. And this produces a dysfunctional relationship. So the first step in God's design for lasting relationships is what? Instead of finding the right person, it is to become the right person. So we have a different starting place. Number two, step two, is to walk in love. Walk in love. Notice what God says in Verse 2 here of Ephesians 5, Paul says, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us. Now, just think for a moment with me, what comes to your mind when you think of a couple quote, walking in love? Perhaps you think of a couple taking long romantic strolls on the beach. I've been to the beach, my wife and I have, and we've walked hand in hand down the beach, kicking up the water and the sand between our toes. We're walking in love. Or maybe you think of, you know, a couple walking hand in hand through the park. Maybe you go down to Gladstone Park and they have that walking trail and you'll see a couple of aged people and they're walking slowly and holding hand in hand. You walk by and, oh, there's so much in love. But this idea that Paul used, this phrase, walk in love, it means so much more than that. It's so much deeper than that. In fact, it means that we love others exactly the same way that Christ loved us. You say, well, whoa, how did Christ love us? How did Christ love me? Listen, this verse gives us the answer. It tells us that Christ gave himself up for us. So here's the deeper application. Walking in love, then, is not so much about just hand-holding through a park or on the beach. Listen, walking in love, get this, it is about sacrificial commitment. Ooh, oh, yes. Yes. For example, walking in love means giving my wife what she needs the most when it's least deserved. Why? Because that's exactly how God has treated me in Christ. That's what biblical love is. Listen, it isn't a a, a passive, quivering mass of good feelings. Biblical love is a deliberate, intentional, honest, and even painful giving up of self-preservation for another person's good. Listen, biblical love is a sacrificial, other centered action that provides what's best for the other person. True. True. God's way is sometimes very hard on the feelings, but it's very healthy for the soul and the relationship. And it works wonders in relationships where both parties find their ultimate identity in Christ. And interestingly enough, it's when we walk in love, get this, that we actually fan the flames of romance that we long to enjoy. And here's the key. Walk in love, you'll not only fall in love with the person you're married to, but you'll stay in love. And as we consciously follow the first two steps in God's game plan, they lead us directly to step number three. Instead of fixing your hope on the other person, fix your hope on God and seek to please him. So now we have a different focus. In a wedding ceremony, it's interesting. I love doing wedding ceremonies. They're great. Every couple stands face to face. I know all of you have been to one. And you've seen a wedding before. They stand face to face before their gathered family and friends. And in our culture's version, which ironically enough, often in a church setting, it isn't ironic, you, even in the movies that come out, a wedding ceremony often takes place where? And it's still in a church setting. The couple, the couple basically declares, in our culture's version, you are the most important person in my life, you complete me. You are my perfect mate. You're the answer to all my dreams. That's basically in summary form what they're saying to each other in our culture version. But in a wedding that seeks to honor God's presence and God's role in their marriage, the couple's vows could be expressed this way. I'm not necessarily recommending it, but we could say it this way. You are not the most important person in my life. Christ is. And because Christ is the most important person in my life... He will help me to love you more than I ever could love you on my own strength alone. Because I know you're going to disappoint me. You're not going to measure up all the time. Now I want you to notice two words in the last half of verse 2. You see these two words? Offering and sacrifice. These two words, offering and sacrifice, are all about the giving and dying of self. I like to call this the smell of Jesus. The smell of Jesus. When Jesus died on the cross for us, listen to me, he didn't give himself up for us because it would please us. Listen, he did this because he knew it pleased his heavenly Father. And as unbelievable as this may sound, the goal of relationships is not to make sure everything goes our way or makes us happy. The goal, get this, is to please God. You see, the best that our world can offer for a model for marriage involves two people who are trying hard to please each other. Whereas God's plan creates an exciting prospect in which two people are actually learning not so much to please each other, but to please their heavenly Father. Why? Because they understand the smell of Jesus needs to permeate their relationship. The problem with most relationships, there's no smell of Jesus in the relationship. There's no giving of self. There's no dying to self. And so we need to evaluate, is there a smell of Jesus in my relationship? Listen, there is no lasting relationship without the giving and dying of of self. This is why when we make our personal happiness the goal of every relationship, it never works out. And when it doesn't work out, we almost always assume the problem is the other person. So we go and find someone else. But God's plan involves a completely different approach. Instead of focusing on what's wrong with the other person, we must become the right person by walking in love and giving sacrificially what other that other person needs. You see, as long as we live, and may I be blunt, with this deluded idea of our culture that sets up the other person to meet all our needs and expectations to make me happy, we are doomed to disappointment. Yes, great relationships involve struggles. They involve conflicts, and they involve working through tough issues, but the result is a lot of personal growth and relational health in our marriage relationships. Now, lest we think that God's plan is simple, we need to understand that God's plan also has a fourth step. Why? Because God understands me perfectly. God understands you perfectly. Notice it, step number four. If failure occurs, repeat steps one, two, and three. Now, as you can see, the fourth step in both the culture's formula and in God's design, they are identical, are they not? but for radically different reasons. Both steps recognize an inevitable feature of all human relationships, failure. Even if we are convinced of the truth of God's way, do you think we can follow these steps flawlessly? Who thinks they can follow these four steps, these three steps flawlessly? Nobody here can. The truth is, there may be times when you think to yourself, "Man, I feel like this relationship I am is is hopeless. I can't stay married to that person. But God's plan doesn't say you won't have those feelings from time to time, but it does say you won't conclude to yourself, well, well, maybe I've got the wrong person. I just need to find the right person now. Listen, when marriage conflicts come, and they inevitably will, God's plan is for us to look in the mirror and ask ourselves, God, how am I contributing to this conflict and what needs to change in my life? You see, this approach shifts our focus off the natural tendency to blame our spouse and on to what you can do about making things better. The answer to our marriage problems is not starting over with finding a new person, but starting over on becoming the right person. This becomes our focus. And as we walk through God's steps here, if failure occurs, and it will, we go back to square one, and we repeat the steps again. So question, how do you think God's design is playing out in the lives who are putting it to the test? Well, notice the success rate. Among those couples who follow God's design, the divorce rate is much, much lower than those who don't. Unfortunately, though, it's still true. The divorce rate between Christians, that is people who profess to know Christ as their Lord and Savior, and unbelievers is still about the same. You say, well, why is this? How, how can that be? How can the divorce rate among professing believers and unbelievers be the same? It's because we've all been shaped by our culture. And in the process, what we as believers have done, we have exchanged God's plan in His Word for our culture's formula, and we are experiencing the same results as our culture. However, get this, in marriages where God's plan is sought after, in marriages where God's plan is being practiced, not perfectly, but progressively... We see remarkable results. Notice this in your notes. The reward and the blessing is those couples experience joy and intimacy in their marriage or with their spouse. Do these marriages have struggles? (laughs) Absolutely. Listen, my wife could stand up here and we could talk for an hour about some of our own struggles in our marriage. We don't have the perfect marriage, do you? Just because I'm the pastor doesn't mean I have a perfect marriage. No way. We get in our tiffs and our fights and conflicts, and we have to humble ourselves. I have to give and die to myself, which I don't like because I'm sinful and I'm selfish, and I have to ask her to forgive me, which I don't like because that's humility. It's humbleness required. But do you know what couples who choose to practice God's plan do? They imitate God. They forgive, they are kind. They look at their own hearts and they sacrificially put each other's needs before their own. And they do this, yes, for a year. They do it for five years. They do it for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. And then they may go through seasons of pressures and kids and finances and you name it, but they don't quit in the process. And God does a work through His grace and He helps them pull through it. Yes, it's very hard. Marriage is work. Marriage is hard. But oh, done God's way, it is very good. It's still true what God said in Genesis after he created Adam and Eve and put them together. It is good. Problem is, sin has marked our lives. And we need the gospel. We need the power of Jesus Christ to make a difference in our lives. And when we do, When we follow God's plan, listen to me, the joy of love, sex, and relaxing relationships become our experience. Now, let me conclude with a pictorial summary of these two models that we just talked about. You'll notice them in the bottom of your notes or coming up on the screen here. And you'll see uh, one triangle and then another triangle. Uh, One's the culture's model, the other's the God's model. And most of us have unconsciously learned how to do relationships according to this first model. Notice this with me. There's four phases. The physical phase is where we are taught to begin. The basis of our entire way of finding real love boils down to the physical, especially for men, but also for women. And then they may progress to the emotional phase, and it marks the onslaught of these euphoric feelings known as infatuation. It's often called falling in love. The emphasis is on In the relationship revolves spending time together, and and it revolves around physical expressions of love for one another. And then they may progress to the social phase, which involves the partners being drawn into each other's social circles, their network of friends that are introducing them to their friends to get their approval from their friends. What do you think? Do you like this person, this guy? Do you think he's okay for me? We introduce them to our family, our parents, kind of seeking their blessing and approval along the way. And then we may enter into the spiritual phase is where the couple yearns for the relationship to last or they might become afraid that it might end. And so they do, if they don't do something, to give it some long-term stability like a wedding. They know they're about to participate in something sacred. And so even unbelievers, it's, it's, it's really ironic, even unbelievers want a pastor, a priest, or a rabbi to officiate their wedding. Most of them. They even want it in a church. And I've had many conversations. We've had phone calls to talk to. Why do you want to have a wedding in, our, in a church? Well, just, the answers you get, it's amazing. Why, why do you want me as a pastor to marry you? And most people attempt to find love, sex, and lasting relationships following this model. And many have discovered that this formula doesn't work. Why? Because our foundation, as you see, is built on the physical. And when the problems and trials come, our relationship falters. But the problem, get this, please understand this, the problem is not with the parts of the process. The problem lies in the fact that we have completely flipped them out of order. We have them upside down. So here's the lesson as we conclude here this morning. God's plan for relationships is the complete opposite of our cultures. It has a different starting place. It keeps a different focus that's on God, and it follows a different path. It walks in love instead of trying to fall in love. And believe me, it achieves remarkably different results with your heads bowed. We're not going to sing a course of invitation, but let me, let me close with just a few questions. As your heads are bowed, let me, let me ask you to think through a couple of questions here for your own personal evaluation. And the first question is this, which triangle most represents your approach to building lasting relationships? When you look at these two triangles, if you're honest, which would you have to identify yourself with? The second question is, what would you like your present and or future relationships to look like? Model number one or model number two? And the third question, what specific steps do you need to take to begin implementing God's plan to lasting relationships? Now, I know many of you are already married. And perhaps you got married following our culture's formula. But you're married now, and that's where you need to start from. It doesn't matter so much how you got married or what your past is, as much as it matters where you're going to start today. And you can begin today to follow God's plan in your marriage. The first step of that is to know Christ as your Savior, as your Lord. So let me ask you, do you know Jesus Christ? Have you been born again? Without the grace of God, without the power of Christ, you're going to have a hard time making relationships work. It starts there. And then begin growing in Christ. Become the right person. Don't focus on your spouse. Instead, focus on becoming the right person. And the second step is to walk in love and seek to please God in your marriage. With nobody looking around, let me ask you just quickly, and I'll pray here. How many would say, Bruce, I, I, I want you to pray for me in my relationship? Whether you're married, unmarried, or in a relationship that's seeking to get married. You, you would raise your hand and say, I need God's prayer in my life. I need God's power. I need help. Would you raise your hand? Nobody's looking around. Thank you. Thank you. Put them down. Lord, we come to you this morning. And I thank you for those that raised their hand. Lord, you know their hearts, you know their circumstances, their situation. And I pray that your grace would extend to them in a mighty way. I pray, Lord, that your word and your people would come around and just surround them. And Lord, I pray that you would give them the grace to submit to your word. And through this series, they would have open hearts, open minds. And Lord, for the rest of us, that we would... Honestly, evaluate our own marriages, our own relationships, whether we're single, single again, or already married. Lord, you would do a work in our church's family and in the relationships we have here today. And you would do it by your power in your word and your people. We pray these things in your name. Amen.